Chapter 8 of Beyond These Voices. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Sarah in Brighton. Beyond These Voices by Mary Elizabeth Braddon. Chapter 8, Part 1. While Claude Rutherford's peril was a subject of troubled thought for his mother and her friend and father confessor Cyprian Hammond, no friendly voice had breathed words of warning into Vera's ear, nor had she any consciousness that warning was needed or that danger threatened. Claude was part of her life from the day when she had met him for the first time after her marriage at a luncheon party at Lady Oakhampton's, and they too had sat talking in the embrasure of a window, recalling delicious memories of her childhood's once happy holiday. The ponies, the dogs, the gardens, the woods, the beach and sea, all the joy of his kindness had created for her in that verdant paradise upon that summer sea. From that happy hour when they had sat talking, 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 while Lady Oakhampton waited with growing displeasure for an unpunctual dowager duchess, she had felt that this kinsman of hers belonged to her, that to him she might look as the guide, philosopher and friend, indispensable to the happiness of every woman whose husband is occupied with serious interests and has a mind above trivialities. There was nothing too trivial for Claude to understand and discuss with interest. The merest nothing would command his serious thought. If it were something that interested Vera, nor was any flight of her fancy too wild or too high for him, from the colour of a frock or the shape of a hat to the most oracular utterance of Zarathustra, she could command his attention and counsel. He came and went in her house like the idle wind, and his entrances and exits were no more considered than the wind. When her particular friends asked her whether she had seen Mr. Rutherford lately, she would shrug her shoulders and smile. My cousin Claude? Yes, he was here yesterday. I see him almost every day. If he has nothing better to do, he comes in after his morning ride and sometimes stays for luncheon. People were not unkind, but as years went on, the situation was taken for granted, and there were quiet smiles, gently significant when Madame Provana and her cousin were talked about. Their relations were accepted as one of those open secrets, not to know which is not to be in society. Lady Susan did her best to establish the scandal by telling people that Vera and Claude had been brought up together, or almost, and that their attachment was the most innocent and prettiest thing imaginable, like Paul and Virginia, a classic which Lady Susan had never read. The almost was necessary, as most people knew that Vera had been brought up by Lady Felicia in furnished lodgings and had hardly had a second frock to her back, to say nothing of being underfed, which early privation was the cause of the pale slenderness that some people called ethereal. Lady Susan's friends, furthermore, being well up in Burke, were satirical about the link of kindred between third and fifth cousins. Yet on the whole there was indulgence, and when Vera went on a week-end visit to the seats of the mighty, she generally found Mr. Rutherford one of the party, which was hardly a cause for wonder, since he was of the stuff of which week-end parties are made. 
Vera was more than innocent. She was unconscious of anything particular in her friendship for his friend of, of her childhood. What could be more natural than that she should love to talk of that one blissful interval in her dull existence, the solitary oasis in the desert of genteel poverty? Only then had she known the beauty of woods and gardens. Only then had she known what summer could mean to the emancipated child, the rapture of riding over dancing waves in a cockleshell of a boat, with the warm wind blowing her hair and the seagulls flashing their white wings overhead, the adorable birds whose name was Legion. To talk of those young days and to feel again as she had felt then was a delight which only Claude could give her, and the more hollow and unsatisfying things that money could buy became to her, the more she loved to sit with her, locked hands upon her knee, and talk of that unforgotten holiday. Do you remember that evening I asked you to row me out to the setting sun, right into the great golden ball, and you said you would, and you went too far, and we were out till after dark, and everybody was frightened and then angry. All their talk began with, do you remember? His memory was better than hers, and he recalled adventures and moments that she had forgotten. One day, he brought her a little sketch on thick cardboard, roughly painted in oils, one of his early bits of Impressionism before he had studied art. A little girl in a short white frock, with hair flying about her, cheeks like roses, and the blue of the sea in her eyes. What a funny child. You didn't mean that for me. For no one else. I have dozens of such daubs. You remember how I used to sit on a rock and paint while you were looking for shells or worrying the jellyfish? Poor things. I wanted to see them move. I hoped they had no feelings. Yes, you used to sit and paint, and I thought you disagreeable because you would not play with me. Beyond these pictures of the past, they had inexhaustible subjects for talk. There was a whole world of literature, the literature of decadence in which Vera had to be initiated, and Claude was a past master in that particular phase of intellectual life. Baudelaire, Verlaine, Nietzsche, the literature of pessimism and the literature of despair, that rebellion against law, human and divine, which Shelley began and which had been a dominant note among young poets since the revolt of Islam, filled romantic minds with wonder and a vague delight. Imperceptibly, naturally and in no manner wrongfully, as it seemed to Vera, Claude Rutherford's society had become essential to her happiness. She accepted the fact as placidly and with as complete confidence in him and in herself as if such a friendship between an idle young man and an imaginative young woman had never been known to end in shame and sorrow. She had lived in the world half a dozen years and had known of many social tragedies, but as these had not touched any friend she valued and as she was not a scandal lover, those dark stories of husbands betrayed and nurseries abandoned had never deeply impressed her and had been speedily forgotten. Nobody, not even Lady Susie, who was a mauvais longue, had ever hinted at impropriety in her association with her cousin. Signor Provana saw him come and go and asked no questions. That stern and lofty nature was of the kind that is not jealous. Had there been no Iago, Cassio might have come and gone freely in the noble Moor's household, and no shadow of 
Vere would have darkened that great love. Vera's husband was a disappointed man. His dream of a young and loving wife who would make up to him for all that he had missed in boyhood and youth had melted into thin air. He was sensitive and proud, and the memory of his unloved childhood and of his first wife's indifference was never absent from his mind when he considered his relations with his second wife. He thought of his age, he saw his stern, rough features in the glass, and a faint touch of coldness, the fretful weariness of an overindulged girl, was taken for aversion, and all his pride and all his force of character rose up against the creature he loved too well to judge wisely. It was he who built the wall that parted them. It was his gloomy distrust of himself rather than of Vera that made the gulf between them. Let her be happy in her own way. He had sworn to make her happy, and if it was her nature to delight in trivial things, if the aimless existence of a rich man's sultana was her idea of bliss, she would reign sole mistress of a harem, which he never would enter while he believed himself unwelcome there. Vera accepted this gradual drifting apart as something inevitable, for which she was not to blame. The strong man's impassioned love, which had appealed to the romantic side of her character, had languished and died with the passing years. She brooded on the change with sorrowful wonder before she became accustomed to the idea that the lover who had taken her to his heart with a cry of ineffable rapture had ceased to exist in the grave man of business, whose preoccupied manner and absent gaze, as of one looking at things far away, chilled her when she sat opposite him on those rare occasions when they dined tete-a-tete. Occasions when the dinner-table was only a glittering spot in the dark spaciousness of the room, a world of shadows where the footmen moved like ghosts in the area between the table and the far-off sideboard. They had been married six years, but Vera thought sadly that her husband looked twenty years older than the companion by whose side she had climbed the mule paths through the lemon orchards and olive woods of San Marco, the man whose conversation had always interested her, her first friend, her first lover. She accepted the change as inevitable, having been taught by the wives of her acquaintance to believe that marriage was the death of love and as gradual as she learned to dispense with her husband's society so guiltlessly, because unconsciously she came to depend upon Claude Rutherford for sympathy and companionship. She did not know that she loved him, though she knew that the day when they did not meet seemed a long, drawn-out weariness, and that when the evening shadows came, they brought a sense of desolation and a strange lassitude as of one weighed down by intolerable burdens. All occupations and all amusements were burdens if Claude was not sharing them, society the heaviest of all, far easier to endure the dreary day in the solitude of her den, with the faces of her beloved dead looking at her, than among empty-headed people who could only talk of what other empty-headed people were doing, or were going to do, with that light spice of malice that makes other people's mistakes and misfortunes so piquant and interesting. Claude Rutherford had become a part of her life, and life was meaningless without him, a fatal stage in the downhill path, but it was a long time before her awakened conscience gave the first note of warning.
Then, waking in the first faint flush of a summer dawn, after a night of troubled sleep and feverish dreams, a night succeeding one of those dismal days that she had been obliged to endure without the sight of the familiar face, the glad, gay call of the familiar voice, the sound of the light footstep on the stairs, she told herself for the first time with unutterable horror that this man was dearer to her than he ought to be, dearer than her husband, dearer than her peace of mind, dearer than all this world had held for her and all the next world promised. Oh, the wickedness of it, the shame, the horror, to be false to him, the man who had put his strong arms round her and lifted her out of the dismal swamp of shabby gentility and taken her to, this gen to his generous heart, the man who trusted her with unquestioning faith, who had never by word or look betrayed the faintest doubt of her truth and purity. No lover's word had been spoken, no lover lover's lips had met, yet as she rose from that uneasy bed and paced the spacious room in fever and agitation, a ghostly figure with bare feet and streaming hair and long white draperies, she felt as if she were steeped to the lips in dishonour, a monster of ingratitude and treachery. And then she began the struggle that most women make, even the weaker souls, when they feel the downward path sloping under their feet and know that the pit of shame lies at the bottom of it, though they cannot see it yet the impotent struggle in which all the odds are against them, their environment, every circumstance of their lives, their friends, the nearest and dearest even, to whom they cannot cry aloud and say, don't you see that I am fighting the tempter? Don't you see that I am halfway down the hill and I'm trying to make a stand, that I'm over the edge of the cliff and hanging to the bushes with bleeding, lacerated hands in a desperate endeavour to keep myself from falling? Have you neither eyes nor understanding that you don't try to help me? Rarely is any friendly hand stretched out to help the woman who sees her danger and tries to escape her doom. Acquaintances look on and smile. These open secrets are accepted as part of the scheme of the universe, a particular phase of existence that doesn't matter as long as the chief actors are happy. The wife, her familiar friend, her complacent or indifferent husband, are smiled upon by a society of men and women who know their world and take it for what it is worth. Only when the actors begin to play their parts badly, when the open secret becomes an open scandal, does society cease to be kind. Vera did not think of society in that tragic hour of an, un of an awakened conscience. That which would have been the first thought with most women had no place in her mind it was of her sin that she thought, the sin of inconstancy, of ingratitude, of faithlessness. Had she crossed the border line and qualified herself for the divorce court, she could not have thought of herself with deeper contrition. To love this other man better than she loved her husband, to long for his coming, to be happy when he was with her and miserable when he was away, there was the sin. But no word of love had been spoken. There was time for repentance. He did not know that she loved him, although looking back and recalling words and tones of his, she could not doubt that he loved her. She could hope that no word of hers had revealed the passion, whose development had been gradual and imperceptible as the growth of the leaf buds in early spring, which no eye marks till they flash into life in the first warmth of April. 
her friendship with this man who was her kindred, the companion of the only happy days of her childhood, had seemed as natural as it would have been to attach herself to a brother with whom she had long been separated. She had welcomed him with a childish eagerness. She had trusted him with a childish belief in the perfection of the creature who is kind. She had admired him, comparing him with all the other young men she knew, and finding him, him infinitely above them. His very weakness had appealed to her. All that was wanting in his character made him more likable, since compassion and regret mingled with her liking. To be so clever, so gifted by nature, and to have done nothing with nature's gifts, to be doomed to go down to death, leaving his name written in waters, to die having finished nothing but his beau jour. People who liked him best talked to him as a young man with a beau passé. Shoulders were shrugged and smiles were sad when his painter friends discussed him. We thought he was going to do great things in art, and he has done nothing. Soldiers who remembered him before he left the army lamented the loss of a man who was made for a soldier. There had been trouble, trouble about a woman that had made him exchange to a line regiment. And then, the war being over and the chance of active service remote, disgust had, disgust had come upon him and he had done with soldiering. Vera had seen the shoulders shrugged, had heard the deprecating criticism of his kinsman of hers, and had been all the kinder to him because fate had been cruel. She had tried to fire him with new hope. She had been ambitious for him, had steeped herself in art books and spent her mornings in picture galleries in order that she might be able to talk to him. She had implored him to go back to his work, to paint better pictures than he had painted when critics prophesied a future for his work. I'm too old, he said. Nonsense, you've wasted a few years, but you will have to work harder and buy back your lost time. Quentin Matisse did not begin to paint till he was older than you. There were giants in those days, compared with such men, I am an invertebrate pygmy. Oh, if you loved art, you would not be content to live without the joy of it. Yes, that's what people look at pictures think, the joy of painting, a thing like that. The man who paints knows when the disgust comes in and the joy goes out. He knows the sense of failure, the disappointment, the longing to fling his half-finished picture on the floor and perform the devil's dance upon it, as Muller used to do. And then one day, as they were going round a picture gallery together, he said, Well, Vera, I've been meditating on your lecture, and I'm going to paint another picture. The last, perhaps. No, it won't be the last. I am going to paint your portrait. After all, that's sermonising. You can't refuse to sit to me. I won't refuse, unless Mario should object. How should he object? He will be in New York, or Madrid, or Constantinople, most likely, while I am painting you. I am nothing, if not impressionist, so it mustn't be a long business. I shall love sitting to you, to see you at work. Yes, to see me earning my bread in the sweat of my brow like the day labourer will be a novelty. I shouldn't want to be paid for the picture, but I dare say Provana would insist upon my taking a fee, and as he counts in thousands, it would be a handsome one. No, Vera, don't blush. I won't take money for my daub. You should give it to the Canine Defence League. It should be a labour of love, a concession to a sermonising cousin. 
I shall paint your portrait just to convince you that I can't paint and that the life I am wasting is worth nothing. Thus, in light talk and laughter, the plan was made that brought them into a closer intimacy than they had known before, and although Claude Rutherford was an impressionist, that portrait was three months upon the easel, which he had rigged up in Vera's morning room. I want to paint you in the room where you live, not with a marble pillar and a crimson curtain for a background. The sittings went on at irregular intervals, in a style that, that was at once sauntering and spasmodic. All through that season, Signor Pavana looked in now and then, stood watching the painter at work for five or ten minutes, criticised and made a sudden exit, driven away by Lady Susan's shrill chatter. But Lady Susan was not always there, and there were more tranquil hours when Vera sat in her half-reclining attitude on a low sofa spread with a tiger skin, fanning herself with a great fan of peacock feathers and gazing at the pictures on the wall with dreaming eyes, hours in which the painter and his subject talked by fits and starts with silent pauses. After all the pains that had been taken, the picture was a failure. The painter hated it. Pravana frankly disapproved, and in the haggard, large-eyed siren smiling over the edge of the fan, Vera could not recognise the face she saw in the glass. I've been much too long over the thing, Claude told Pravana, with slow and languid speech, half indifference, half disgust, and it is a dismal failure. But I shall do better next time, if Vera will let me make a rapid sketch of her when the daffodils are in bloom and we shall be weekending at Marley Chase. I could make a picture of her on the hill above the house, in the yellow afternoon light and among the yellow flowers. I am an open-air painter, if I am anything, but I had almost forgotten how to set a palette. I shall work in a friend's studio in the autumn and I may do better next year. Vera urged him to persevere in this good intention and not to mind his failure. I mind nothing, he said. I have had three happy months. I mind nothing while you are kind and forgive me for having put you to a lot of trouble with this atrocious daub for the outcome of it all. Privileged people only were allowed to see the daub but those, although supposed to be few, in the end proved to be many. Critics were among them, and Mr Rutherford was too shrewd not to discover that every connoisseur had a little hole to pick in the portrait, and that when all the little holes were put together there was nothing left. And this picture, so poor a thing that it was as it was made, made the beginning of that open secret which everybody knew long before the awakening of Vera's conscience. And while Mario Pravana saw nothing to suspect or to fear in his wife's intimacy with her cousin. But now, with the awakening of conscience, began the fight against fate, the fight of the weak against the strong, the woman against the man, innocent youth against an experienced lover. She was single-hearted and pure in intention, counting happiness as thistledown against gold, when weighed against her honour as a wife. But she entered the lists without knowing the strength of her opponent, the passive force of a weak man's selfishness. The main purpose of her life was henceforward to release herself from the web that had been woven so easily, so imperceptibly. First, a careless association between two people whose likings and ideas were in harmony, then friendship, confidence, sympathy, and then unavowed love, love that made the days desolate when the lovers were not together. He had been too frequent and too dear a companion. He had become the master of her life, 
and it was for her to release herself with that unholy bondage. She had to learn to live without him. It needed more than common cleverness and tact to bring about a change in their manner of life without making a direct appeal to Rutherford's honour and telling him that their friendship had become a danger. To do this would be to tell him that she loved him, to confess her weakness before he had passed the borderline that divides the friend from the lover. No, she could make no appeal to the man whose smouldering fires she feared to kindle into flame. She knew that he loved her and that he had made her love him. She had to escape from the web that he had woven round her, and she had, if possible, to set herself free without his knowing the strength of her purpose or the desperate nature of the struggle. All the chances were against her. She could not bid him in the house without an open scandal. As he had come and gone in the last four years, he must still be free to come and go. She could only avoid those familiar hours, hours that had been so dear, by living in a perpetual restlessness, always finding some engagement away from home. It was dreary work. But she persevered and enlisted all the disbros in her cause, unconscious that they were being made use of. She accepted every invitation, lent herself to every, everybody's fads, philanthropic or otherwise, listened to the same fiddlers and singers day after day, in drawing rooms and among people that she knew by heart, or stood with aching head under a ten-guinea hat, selling programmes at amateur theatricals. She contracted a closer alliance with the lady Susan Amphlett, and planned excursions, a day at Windsor, a day at Dorking, at Guildford, to rummage in furniture shops at Greenwich, to see the Nelson relics, to Richmond and Hampton, even to Kew Gardens. Lady Susan was almost worn out by these simple pleasures, but as she professed and sincerely an absolute cult for Vera Pavana, she held out bravely. These excursions were fairly successful, and as Vera took care that no one should know where she and her friend were going, not even Susan until they were on the road, it was not possible for Claude to follow her. It was otherwise in the houses of her friends where she was always meeting him and where it was essential that she should seem to avoid him, that she should not seem to avoid him, least of all to let him see she, she was doing so. She greeted him always with the old friendliness and a little more cousinly than it had been of late, and she showed a matronly interest in his health and occupations, as if she had been an aunt rather than a cousin. It is quite delightful to meet you here this afternoon, he told her, in a ducal house where guinea tickets for a charity concert seemed cheap to the outside public. You are to be met anywhere and everywhere except in your own house. I have called so often that I have taken a disgust for your knockers. When I am dead, I believe those lion's head will be found engraven on my heart like Queen Mary's Calais. It was only natural that, with the awakening of conscience, that there should come the thought of those two first years of a married life, when her husband's love had made an atmosphere of happiness around her, when she had cared for no other companion, needed no other friend, those blessed years before Claude Rutherford's pale, clear-cut face and low, seductive voice had become a part of her life, essential to her peace. The change of feeling, the growing regard for this man had come about so gradually, with a growth so slow and, and imperceptible, that she tried in vain to analyse her feelings in those four years of careless intimacy and to trace the process by which an innocent friendship had changed to a guilty love. When had the fatal change begun? She could not tell. 
It was only when she felt the misery of one long day of parting that she knew her sin. The husband had become a stranger. The friend had become the other half of her soul. He had called her by that sweet name sometimes, but was so playful a tone that the impassioned phrase had not scared her. It was one of many lightly spoken phrases that she had heard as carelessly as they was uttered. And now looking back at the last two years, she told herself that it was her husband's fault that she had lent on Claude for sympathy, her husband's fault that they that they had been too much together. For some reason that she had never fathomed, Mario Bravano had held himself aloof from the old domestic intimacy. It was not only that his business engagements necessitated his absence from home several times in the course of the year, and on occasion for a considerable period. He had business in Russia and in Austria, and he had crossed the Atlantic twice in the last year. The affairs of his New York house calling for special attention in a disturbed state of American finance. These frequent absences alone were sufficient to weaken the marriage bond, but in the last year he had given his wife very little of his society when they were under the same roof. You have hosts of friends, he said one day, when she was reproaching him for keeping aloof. People who share your tastes and can be amused by the things that amuse you. I bring back a tired brain after my continental journeys, and I'm still more tired after New York. I shall make a wretched companion for a young wife, a beautiful butterfly who was born to shine among all the other butterflies. I am nearly as tired as you are after your business journeys, Mario, she said. I shall be very glad when we go back to Rome. But you will have other butterflies there, and a good many of the same that flutter about you here, he answered. We will shut our doors upon them and live quietly, like Darby and Joan, old Darby and young Joan. No, Vera, we won't try that. You weren't made for the part. She had been too proud to say more. If he was tired of her, if he had ceased to care for her, she would not ask him why. But now, in her desperate need, sick to death of those aimless excursions and unamusing amusements with Lady Susan, and of the dire necessity of keeping away from her own house to flutter from party to party, almost sure of meeting Claude wherever she went, she turned in her extremity to her natural protector and tried to find shelter in the love that ought to be her strong rock. End of chapter 8, part 1 Recording by Sarah in Brighton.